So Money episode 869, Ask Farnoosh, with special co-host Lily Chen. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. You're listening to So Money, everybody. Welcome back to the show. It is Friday. The date is April 5th. How's everyone doing? I hope everybody had a good first week of April and that uh, you, you enjoyed the episode this week. We had Ida Rademacher on Monday, who's with the Aspen Institute, talking about all the important ways that she's working with individuals and you know, government and corporations uh, to help kind of bridge the gap between uh, the rich and the poor. Frankly, you know, Ida works at a think tank, uh, Aspen Institute, that's doing some really incredible work with economic policy. And of course, she had an incredible story of her own, her personal journey, how she got to where she is, her upbringing. So check out that episode if you haven't. Our episode today is Ask Farnoosh. And in the spirit of of the show, we've got on uh, a listener, Lily Chen. Let me just brag about Lily for a second, and then I'll pull her up on stage. But Lily's a listener of this show. She reached out to me quite some time ago. We finally made it happen for her to co-host with me. She's a medical doctor and a podcast host on her own from Sydney, Australia. She has come a long way. She's overcome some hardships like being rejected from job applications three times. She veered her life in a different direction and chose to attend medical school and then became the host of her own podcast, which I love the name of her podcast. It's How to Win Friends and Influenza. Oh my gosh. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Farnoosh. Thank you for that generous introduction. Well, what brought you to a money podcast? Well, I just love the work that you're doing, Farnoosh. The work that you're doing on educating people on what they can be doing with their money. It's, it's a way of empowering them, really. So the, the topic is interesting. I love your sort of presentation style and the information you give. And it was just a great resource to learn more about this kind of thing. What inspired you to start your own podcast? Do you feel like there is um, a big market for, I guess, your audience is physicians? Yeah, a mixture of junior physicians physicians and medical students who want to learn more, but it's really open to everyone. It's going to really sound like you paid me to say this, but your podcast was really one of the first that I listened to. And that idea of getting knowledge from different people, different interviews, that kind of spoke to me. And I thought, do we really have something like this in medicine? And I think the answer is, is no. People want to learn about cardiology and immunology and what the difference between each one is, but there isn't something out there that's really fun and audio-based that they can listen to. So that's kind of what drove this. Wow. I also want to learn a little bit about your career transition. So when I was in university, my undergraduate was actually business. I worked in business for a while. And then after some point, I started thinking health is really interesting. And it's one of those big pillars of our lives, you know, health and children and family and whatever else that people are interested in. So I naturally gravitated towards it, find it really interesting and went and studied health. And that's kind of where I am now. Do you have a specific focus in health? Is it pediatrics? You know what? A little bit of 
everything. I think just in medicine, like medicine in general is just so interesting. So some sort of general practice is really what I'm aiming towards. I've had a couple of doctors on the show in America. There's a lot of student loan debt that comes with becoming a doctor often. It's very expensive to pursue. And so often physicians find themselves in a place where they're trying to build their careers and also trying to manage their debt loads and just kind of get um, up to speed financially because they've been in school for about a decade. So they feel a little bit behind with regards to things like retirement planning and things like that. Is it similar um, on your side of the pond? Well, in Australia, we're quite lucky because our, our universities are government funded. So there's some private institutions, but basically it's funded by the governments, strongly subsidized. So we don't really mm. end up with those quarter of a million dollar loans. Wow. It's, you know, maybe something like $10,000 a year for four years, something like this. And we have a very, very generous loan system, which is indexed at the rate of inflation. So it's almost like an interest free loan. So we are very, very lucky in that respect. Probably the biggest hurdle is just the fact that you're behind your peers. So some of your friends who went down a different path will be will be in respectable jobs, you know, being taxpayers while you're still in the student eating ramen kind of phase. And and so it's more that that life setback in in a way. Mm -hmm. And so from that point of view, I'm not sure everyone will recommend doing medicine if you want money or something like that. It's more like if you're willing to put your life on hold for a little bit to get more education on something you find really exciting. Well, you heard it here. If you want to get your <laughs> medical degree at no cost, uh, head over to <laughs> come to Australia. <laughs> Australia, what a difference! Okay, well, we have some questions here from our listeners, and the first couple actually deal with a four hundred one k in Australia. How does it work with retirement planning? Do your workplaces typically offer a retirement plan? How does that work? Yeah, so here we don't have the two system, you know, with the 401k and the Roth IRA. We just have one system called superannuation. And at the moment, it's compulsory government mandated contribution of about 9.5%. So the employer has to take that amount and put it in your superannuation. Mm-hmm. And unless super, super special circumstances, you can't access it till you're of certain age, something like 65. So it's like this forced savings plan. And you can always contribute a little bit more, but it's just that idea that, you know, we don't know if people can save for themselves. So just in case, let's set some good habits aside for the long term. And it's a little bit more simple than the US, I think. Uh, Just a tad. Yet another reason to move to Australia, I guess. Uh, (laughs) I mean, we do have Social Security, but it's nothing to bank your whole retirement on, um, at least not in most parts of this country. So that is what it sounds like, but it's so robust, almost 10%. That's what people are now really tasked with saving on their own if they want to get to retirement with a healthy, sizable nest egg. Okay. So the questions regarding 401k from our listeners, the first one on Instagram is what is the best way to get my 401k rebalanced if I don't use a financial advisor? So this is really simple. A lot of times your 401k will have an auto rebalance feature. And here's the thing. If you have a 401k at work, I I don't think you need a financial advisor going in there and making money moves. In fact, I think you want to reserve working with a financial advisor until you have other things on your plate. Like you want to actually plan for your future, plan for a family or plan for your business and or um, buying a home and retirement and all that. I mean, your 401k is an aspect of your financial planning, but it comes with its own kind of like portfolio a manager, so to speak, through the 401k company. You can set up things like auto rebalance. You can talk to somebody through the free 800 number. You can re 
allocate the portfolio if for some reason you decide you want to take on more risk or less risk, et cetera. So I don't think hiring a financial advisor makes a lot of sense if it's just for managing your 401k. And good news, you, you know, you can just do this automatically with either going on the website for your 401k plan manager or calling the 800 number and saying, hey, can you set me up with 401k auto rebalance? Which just to take a step back means that you know, let's say you have an 80% stock, 20% bond allocation in your portfolio. If the market really has a great year or an amazing quarter, your allocation might look more something like, you know, 90% stocks, 10% bonds after that big rise in the market, um, which may not be something that you want necessarily. You might feel like you're a little too exposed in the market now in stocks. So what auto rebalance does is every quarter or once a year, I think you can set it periodically, it will rebalance to the percentage allocation that you're comfortable with. Next question is from Hallie on Instagram, who has a 401k and a Roth IRA, which Lily, a Roth IRA is like a supplement to sometimes Mm. what people have as a 401k. Um, it's another way to save for retirement. And she wants to invest another $50,000 of her money somewhere. And at this point thinking, maybe I should hire a money manager or a financial advisor. And so, you know, coming out of that previous question about working with a financial advisor, I think, Hallie, it might make sense to work with somebody to think about where to best allocate this. Not so much, you know, a stock picker for you, but someone who can look at your holistic financial plan. So yes, part of your plan is to figure out where to park this 50,000 extra dollars, which congratulations that you have it. Um, but really putting it into consideration, like, okay, what is, what are your goals, right? What are your five-year goals, your 10-year goals, your 30-year goals, your six-month goals? And then where does this $50,000 best fit into that plan? Could you take some of it and put it into rainy day if you don't have enough of a rainy day? Should you take some of it and put it into the stock market for the long run because you feel like you maybe want to do more on the retirement front? Do you want to use some of that for a down payment on a home? Do you want to use some of that to build a business? You know, Working with someone like a financial planner um, can't hurt in this circumstance to kind of help you shape that bigger picture plan and how to really best leverage this money. I don't necessarily think it has to go in one place. It could go in a number of places. It's a lot of money to work with. If you had $50,000, Lily, what would you do with it? Ooh, I guess the first answer people attempted to say is, oh, you know, go on a holiday, do something like that. But for me, I would probably go down that Warren Buffett school of thought and, you know, put it in Vanguard or somewhere safe, somewhere nicely indexed, somewhere safe with some algorithm away from human hands where you know that it'll grow at a not too ambitious, but kind of reasonable rate. So I wonder, one thing is, when should people go to someone for their money management versus getting some education themselves and looking into the it themselves? Because not everyone has a financial advisor, not everyone has a money manager. So how do people decide if they're better off being independent or if they should seek some help? Sure. Yeah, it's a really good question. And I, I can speak for myself and just say that in my life, I have worked independently. I've worked with a planner. I work independently now. When I worked with a planner, I found it really helpful because I was at a point in my life where I was really going through a transition. I was getting married. My business was growing. I wanted to start planning for a family. And at that point, I thought having 
an expert who could kind of look at the big picture and offer my husband and I some objective advice and help us really level the playing field a little bit and kind of see where we could meet each other and where are some of the holes and things like insurance and family planning and et cetera, et cetera. I, I really bet we all benefited from that time frame when we worked with somebody who was able to get us a plan, um, get us, you know, meeting with other people too, who could help us with, for example, our will and our tax planning. So a lot of times your financial planner is like point one in your overall kind of building your network out. So if you need, you know, an estate attorney or you need a, an accountant for your business or an insurance agent to help you find some life insurance, your planner can often make recommendations. Um, and then those people talk, you know, their, your planner then talks to these people and can help to really create some synergy and connect dots. So it helped. And then I eventually felt like we outgrew needing a planner because once she got us the plan and got us rocking and rolling and automating a lot of the savings and investment, whatever, I felt, you know what, I don't want to be paying someone at this point because all she's doing is more or less like, you know, being on call if we need her advice or um, moving some of our money around in our portfolio, which frankly, I don't think is necessary, right? I just want to be in a portfolio that's riding the market, nothing crazy. I don't want to be paying a lot of fees for my investments. And so we have now um, put our money on an automated investment platform. Um, and then the planning stuff we have pretty, we feel we have a good handle on. Um, we have all the the plan figured out more or less. But I will say that if like, let's say down the road, my business, you know, 10 X's or Tim wants to start a business or we get a huge inheritance and we're kind of like, ah, you know, what do we do with this? That's like the best. I think that perhaps rather than enlisting the help of a planner to work with us on an annual basis, now you can just work with a planner on a monthly retainer basis, right? I, I think it's always helpful to get a third party to weigh in, an expert to say, I like what you're doing, or have you thought about this, or I wouldn't do it that way, and here's why. Um, as you're about to make a big decision with your money, why not? And then just paying that person by the hour or for the month. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like great advice. So so getting people to start off with the help, and you can always tone down later as needed, but not a bad idea to get someone with some expertise to, to chip in. So another thought there is for, for Hallie, if she's going to start off with her first money manager interaction, what sort of characteristics would tell her if this person is dodgy or, or if they're trustworthy? What sort of things should she look out for? I love that you have these supplementary questions for my listeners. <laughs> um, so for Hallie, I'd say, you know, and for everyone listening, because this does come up quite a bit when you're looking for a planner is, you know, one, go through your recommendations, ask friends and family and coworkers for their best people. Um, usually that's a good way to start talking to a number of people. And, and in terms of what to look out for, I think that you want to click with this person. A lot of times it's just about a gut check. Obviously, you want to make sure that they're credentialed, that they are certified. You want to ask them about their fees. Don't assume. Don't be embarrassed. It's part of their job to disclose. And if they're not disclosing, um, ask. And if then they get a little, if they make you feel uncomfortable for asking, or if you f somehow feel like it felt like it was an inappropriate question, that's a red flag. You know, you don't want to work with somebody who's wishy-washy about their fees. So ask about what it's going to cost. Ask them about 
you know, off the top of their head, what are some of the recommendations and ways that you think that they would be able to help you? It's an audition. It's an interview. And the first meeting is often free, but I find that the best relationships are the ones where you feel as though this planner really is going to bat for you, really cares about your goals. You know, a good sign in the first meeting is if this planner, rather than touting off all of their successes with other clients or name dropping, whatever, because that happens a lot in New York too. Did you know that I manage this person's money? Is that they ask you a lot of questions about your goals, you know, and what do you care about? Where do you want to be? And, and feel you feel like you got somebody who is not just going to manage your money, but is really going to champion you. Um, so that's important. It's a relationship like any other, and it's quite an intimate one. They're going to be looking at your money and your savings and your everything. So you want to feel like there's a lot of um, trust there. Are we good, right. Lily? Are you are you taking notes? Are you looking into hiring a planner? <laughs> Maybe that was my question. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. On on behalf of Hallie on Instagram, your fan, I will say that I'm sure she is satisfied with all that information. All Sounds right. great. All right. Well, good luck, Hallie, and let you know we're always here for you. Okay, the next question is from Madison, and this I can relate to a lot because this was basically me. Um, she says she's going out of her college year soon. She's finishing up school, and she's got about 30000 in student loans. Now, I didn't have loans in un- from undergrad, but when I went to graduate school, I definitely amassed a good $25,000, in debt. And the good news is that she says she's actively paying it off by moving back in with her parents for her final year of school. And she's putting about $1,000 towards it a month, which is a lot. I think that's really great. Wondering if it would be smarter to try to max out my Roth IRA this year before focusing on loans. Currently, she's putting money in her retirement Roth every month. I I think that I don't know the interest rate on these student loans, Madison. I don't know if they're crazy high or if they're average around 5 6%. But I think that with retirement, it, it would be great to get a head start, you know, if you can max out the Roth, especially because you are young. This is a really good time to take advantage of the Roth. You know, as you know, with the Roth IRA, the more money you make, eventually you might phase out of being able to qualify for it. So take advantage of it if you can. Don't neglect your student loans, pay them on time and to the extent that you have to, if you've got extra, put money towards that. But I think trying to to do both, like straddle both the student loans and the Roth IRA, it would be my plan because again, it's, it's really an opportunistic time now to be getting into retirement savings. I mean, you're already so ahead of the curve. So smart, right, Lily, that she moved in with her parents to start paying down that debt. I think, you know, I don't know, again, the interest rate on that, but I think she'll be debt-free within three years at this rate. I I feel like the rational response to this is, as to anything, it depends because it really does depend on the rate of student loans. If it's some crazy loan shark thing with a hundred million thousand percent, sure, it makes sense to pay the loans (laughs) off first. But, you know, the rational argument is that kind of mathematical analysis, like you have to sit down with a pen and paper and actually calculate is it you know worth the return of the Roth or is the loans going to be bigger? But at the same time, there is that kind of psychological argument that maybe it's good to develop those saving habits now and, and do a little bit of both, like you said, Farnoosh. Yeah. But Madison, really, really proud that you made this bold move to move back in with your parents and, and do the you know responsible thing of paying down the debt sooner than later. Your 30-year-old self will be thanking you 
if you're not already thinking yourself. (laughs) And And, and parents are usually happy to have their kids around anyway. (laughs) Yeah, what a treat for mom and dad. Last question here is from Amy and she, okay, so this question, I think that the intention is so lovely, but I want to give her some different advice contrary to what she's suggesting. And so anyway, let me tell you what is on her money mind. So Amy's been saving money for her niece for college since she was born, which is so great. Um, And now wondering what is the best course of action for the money that Amy, Aunt Amy has saved for her niece? Aunt Amy thinks that maybe she should open up a credit card in her niece's name, sorry, in, um, yes, in her niece's name and have that bill come to Amy and Amy would pay it off and that the credit card could be used for like books and pizza and whatever within reason. And that Aunt Amy would pay it off monthly and in effect be, be creating a credit history for her niece. What are my thoughts and suggestions on this? I don't love that plan, Lily. Yeah. I'm a, uh, uh, can you tell why? I Look, I'm going to quote, I think it's a millionaire next door where he has that little bit sad story about the two kids. One of them is very financially dependent on the on the parents and it creates this kind of needy parasitism, like symbiotic relationship like, like that. And the other one goes off and is a little bit more independent, but in the long run is a lot more satisfied. And so I guess my worry there is what kind of incentives are being created for the niece if, if she's got this free pass. I'm not saying she's going to spend all her money on beer and cocaine or anything, but, 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 you know, to, to, to give someone a head start in something like education or or something solid like that could be a different way to go. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Amy wanting to support her needs. I love this. I think I wish more people had, you know, family that could be as, as generous and, and forward thinking. I mean, she's been saving for her since she was little. I would love to see more of a an accountability here for the niece, right? So rather than just saying, here's your credit card, and I'll just clear the bill within reason even, I'd say have your niece come up with the budget that she needs to um, you know, realistically spend every semester, her books, food, travel, et cetera, et cetera. And you perhaps allocating that to her um, on a debit card to start, maybe not a credit card, you know, because one, as you know, she's not gonna be able to qualify on her own. And I don't love the idea of you opening it for her in her name. I think um, we have some time here still to kind of work on the credit profile. We don't have to start it first year of college. I think if she's really new to money management, she needs to first learn how to live within her means. And if you want to give her like $500 a month or a semester or whatever, then she has to learn to actually stick to that budget. And there might be some weeks that where money is really tight and the bank of Aunt Amy is closed. That's like a really good exercise to go through. I would also sit down and talk to her parents, perhaps. I don't know what the relationship here is, if parents are in the picture, if you're close with her parents. But I think that, you know, college is a family affair. It's an expensive cost for everybody involved. Uh, A lot of kids, of course, pay their own way. But if the parents are affording a bit of her college, having a family conversation about how can we best, you know, take advantage, you know, in a positive way, Aunt Amy's resources perhaps it's that you directly contribute to the tuition or you co- directly contribute to her rent. You know, as far as building credit, I, I do want to say that, you know, the earlier you can establish credit, obviously the better, but you want to make sure that you're ready, right? To take on the responsibilities. And it's not a learning process if your aunt is covering the bill every month. Yeah, you're helping her establish credit 
positively. But then what happens if she graduates, opens up her own credit card, has no idea how to use it, and then ruins all the good work that you've helped her you know, achieve, all the good credit that you've helped her achieve? A secured card perhaps might be better. Um, you, she actually brought up a secured card where you can go with your niece to the bank, help her open up um, a secured card, which is kind of like a credit card on training wheels. You put initial like $500 of your own money on it, which acts now as your credit limit. This could be Aunt Amy's $500. But as your niece uses this and hopefully pays it back responsibly on her own, then she's establishing credit, that activity gets reported to credit bureaus, then she gets a credit score. And I know maybe she doesn't have any disposable income of her own to pay back this secured card, but perhaps she should not open this up until she has means to do so, getting that job. It's not always easy to tackle academics and work, and but if, uh, if she wants to splurge on dinners out and travel, I think that's where she needs to really step up and afford that on her own. I think that if you want to be this kind of bank for your niece where you're providing her with money for the necessities, that's going to go a long way. College is a very expensive between books and fees and tuition and food. But if she wants to go on a ski trip with her friends, I think she should get a job and pay for that. That's my opinion. That's what I hope to do with my kids. So I don't know, Lily, how it works in Australia. As you said, college often is affordable and it's a lot of times compensated through the government. But we got a little bit of a different scenario here in the States. So I do think one thing is universal and very, very lovely. The impression I get from this question is just the aunt wants to do something really, really kind for her yes. niece. And, and I think that doesn't have to be expressed through money. I think money is one way we can do that. But just her intentions being so pure, I'm sure there are other ways that will shine through, even just spending time with the niece, cooking for her, doing something nice. You know, there are so many ways that will come through. So it doesn't have to be just giving your life savings or just setting up this, this very, very generous credit card scheme. I think there are other ways. So maybe there's no rush to just do it all financially. Well said. Lily Chen, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us a bit more about where we can find you. And uh, obviously your podcast is How to Win Friends and Influenza. Everybody subscribe. <laughs> uh, the website is also howtowinfriendsandinfluenza.com. Thank you so much for having me on. It's It's been great. And I think your show is just doing so much on educating people about their financial management. So How to Win Friends and Influenza, you can search it on any of those fancy podcast sites or iTunes, or like you said, go to howtowinfriendsandinfluenza.com. But mainly I'll just say, keep listening to So Money because it's a really great show. And I was not paid to say that. Oh, man. Oh, thank you so much. Such It's so lovely to connect with a fellow female podcaster. I hope you stick with it. We need you. Thank you. We need more voices like you out there, um, you know, creating the diverse dialogue that we need and to support other women and men. So thank you for the work that you're doing, Lily. It's really needed. Thank you. And everybody, hope your weekend is, Lily? So money. So money.